Section two of the Call of the Canyon by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter one, part two. Carly Birch possessed in full degree the prevailing modern craze for speed. She loved a motor car ride at sixty miles an hour along a smooth, straight road, or better, on the level seashore of Ormond, where on moonlight nights the white blanched sand seemed to flash toward her. Therefore, quite to her taste, was the twentieth century limited, which was hurling her on her way to Chicago. The unceasing smooth and even rush of the train satisfied something in her. An old lady, sitting in an adjoining seat with a companion, amused Carly by the remark, I wish we didn't go so fast. People nowadays haven't time to draw a comfortable breath. Suppose we should run off the track. Carly had no fear of express trains or motor cars or transatlantic liners. In fact, she prided herself in not being afraid of anything. But she wondered if this was not the false courage of association with a crowd. Before this enterprise at hand, she could not remember anything she had undertaken alone. Her thrills seemed to be in abeyance to the end of her journey. That night her sleep was permeated with the steady low whirring of the wheels. Once roused by a jerk, she lay awake in the darkness, while the thought came to her that she and all her fellow passengers were really at the mercy of the engineer. Who was he, and did he stand at his throttle keen and vigilant, thinking of the lives entrusted to him? Such thoughts vaguely annoyed Carly, and she dismissed them. A long half-day wait in Chicago was a tedious preliminary to the second part of her journey. But at last she found herself aboard the California Limited, and went to bed with a relief quite a stranger to her. The glare of the sun under the curtain awakened her. Propped up on her pillows, she looked out at apparently endless green fields or pastures, dotted now and then with little farmhouses and tree-skirted villages. This country, she thought, must be the prairie land she remembered lay west of the Mississippi. Later in the dining car, the steward smilingly answered her question. This is Kansas, and those green fields out there are the wheat that feeds the nation. Carly was not impressed. The color of the short wheat appeared soft and rich, and the boundless fields stretched away monotonously. She had not known there was so much flat land in the world, and she imagined it might be a fine country for automobile roads. When she got back to her seat, she drew the blinds down and read her magazines. Then, tiring of that, she went back to the observation car. Carly was accustomed to attracting attention, and did not resent it unless she was annoyed. The train evidently had a full complement of passengers, who, as far as Carly could see, were people not of her station in life. The glare from the many windows and the rather crass interest of several men drove her back to her own section. There she discovered that someone had drawn up her window shades. Carly promptly pulled them down and settled herself comfortably. Then she heard a woman speak, not particularly low. I thought people traveled west to see the country. And a man replied rather dryly, Well, not always. His companion went on, If that girl was mine, I'd let down her skirt. The man laughed and replied, Martha, you're sure behind the times. Look at the pictures in the magazines. 
Such remarks amused Carly, and later she took advantage of an opportunity to notice her neighbors. They appeared a rather quaint old couple, reminding her of the natives of the country towns in the Adirondacks. She was not amused, however, when another of her woman neighbors, speaking low, referred to her as a lunger. Carly appreciated the fact that she was pale, but she assured herself that there ended any possible resemblance she might have to a consumptive. And she was somewhat pleased to hear this woman's male companion forcibly voice her own convictions. In fact, he was nothing if not admiring. Kansas was interminably long to Carly, and she went to sleep before riding out of it. Next morning, she found herself looking out at the rough, gray, and black land of New Mexico. She searched the horizon for mountains, and there did not appear to be any. She received a vague, slow-dawning impression that was hard to define. She did not like the country, though that was not the impression which eluded her. Bare gray flats, low scrub-fringed hills, bleak cliffs, jumble after jumble of rocks, and occasionally a long vista down a valley, somehow compelling, these passed before her gaze until she tired of them. Where was the West Glenn had written about? One thing seemed sure, and it was that every mile of this crude country brought her nearer to him. This reoccurring thought gave Carly all the pleasure she had felt so far in this endless ride. It struck her that England or France could be dropped down into New Mexico and scarcely noticed. By and by the sun grew hot. The train wound slowly and creakingly up grade. The car became full of dust, all which was disagreeable to Carly. She dozed on her pillow for hours, until she was stirred by a passenger crying out delightedly, Look, Indians! Carly looked, not without interest. As a child she had read about Indians, and memory returned images both colorful and romantic. From the car window she espied dusty flat barrens, low squat mud houses, and queer-looking little people, children naked or extremely ragged and dirty, women in loose garments with flares of red, and men in white man's garb, slovenly and motley. All these strange individuals stared apathetically as the train slowly passed. Indians, muttered Carly incredulously, well, if they are the noble red people, my illusions are dispelled. She did not look out the window again, not even when the brakeman called out the remarkable name of Albuquerque. Next day Carly's languid attention quickened to the name of Arizona, and to the frowning red walls of rock, and to the vast rolling stretches of cedar-dotted land. Nevertheless, it affronted her. This was no country for people to live in, so far as she could see, it was indeed uninhabited. Her sensations were not, however, limited to sight. She became aware of unfamiliar disturbing little shocks or vibrations in her eardrums, and after that a disagreeable bleeding of the nose. The porter told her this was owing to the altitude. Thus, one thing and another kept Carly most of the time away from the window, so that she really saw very little of the country. From what she had seen, she drew the conviction that she had not missed much. At sunset, she deliberately gazed out to discover what an Arizona sunset was like, just a pale yellow flare. She had seen better than that above the Palisades. Not until reaching Winslow did she realize how near she was to her journey's end, and that she would arrive at Flagstaff after dark. She grew conscious of nervousness, 
Suppose Flagstaff were like these other queer little towns. Not only once, but several times before the train slowed down for her destination, did Carley wish she had sent Glenn word to meet her. And when presently she found herself standing out in the dark, cold, windy night before a dim-lit railroad station, she more than regretted her decision to surprise Glenn. But that was too late, and she must make the best of her poor judgment. Men were passing to and fro on the platform, some of whom appeared to be very dark of skin and eye, and were probably Mexicans. At length, an expressman approached Carly, soliciting patronage. He took her bags, and depositing them in a wagon, he pointed up the wide street, one block up and turn, Hotel Weatherford. Then he drove off. Carly followed, carrying her small satchel. The cold wind driving the dust stung her face as she crossed the street to a high sidewalk that extended along the block. There were lights in the stores and on the corners, yet she seemed impressed by a dark, cold, windy bigness. Many people, mostly men, were passing up and down, and there were motor cars everywhere. No one paid any attention to her. Gaining the corner of the block, she turned and was relieved to see the hotel sign. As she entered the lobby, a clicking of pool balls and the discordant rasp of a phonograph assailed her ears. The expressman set down her bags and left Carly standing there. The clerk or proprietor was talking from behind his desk to several men, and they were loungers in the lobby. The air was thick with tobacco smoke. No one paid any attention to Carly until at length she stepped up to the desk and interrupted the conversation there. "'Is this a hotel?' she queried brusquely. The shirt-sleeved individual leisurely turned and replied, "'Yes, ma'am.' And Carly said, "'No one would recognize it by the courtesy shown. I have been standing here waiting to register.' With the same leisurely case and a cool, laconic stare, the clerk turned the book toward her. Reckon people round here ask for what they want. Carly made no further comment. She assuredly recognized that what she had been accustomed to could not be expected out here. What she most wished to do at the moment was to get close to that big open grate where a cheery red and gold fire cracked. It was necessary, however, to follow the clerk. He assigned her to a small drab room which contained a bed, a bureau, and a stationary washstand with one spigot. There was also a chair. Carly removed her coat and hat. The clerk went downstairs for the rest of her luggage. Upon his return, Carly learned that a stage left the hotel for Oak Creek Canyon at nine o'clock next morning, and this cheered her so much that she faced a strange sense of loneliness and discomfort with something of fortitude. There was no heat in the room and no hot water. When Carly squeezed the spigot handle, there burst forth a torrent of water that spouted up out of the washbasin to deluge her. It was colder than any ice water she had ever felt. It was piercingly cold. Hard upon the surprise and shock, Carly suffered a flash of temper. But then the humor of it struck her, and she had to laugh. "'Serves you right, you spoiled doll of luxury,' she mocked. "'This is out west. Shiver and wait on yourself.' Never before had she undressed so swiftly nor felt so grateful for thick woolen blankets on a hard bed. Gradually she grew warm. The blackness, too, seemed rather comforting. "'I'm only twenty miles from Glenn,' she whispered. "'How strange. I wonder will he be glad. 
She felt a sweet, glowing assurance of that. Sleep did not come readily. Excitement had laid hold of her nerves, and for a long time she lay awake. After a while, the chug of motor cars, the click of pool balls, the murmur of low voices all ceased. Then she heard a sound of wind outside, an intermittent low moaning, new to her ears, and somehow pleasant. Another sound greeted her, the musical clanging of a clock that struck the quarters of the hour. Sometime late, sleep claimed her. Upon awakening, she found she had overslept, necessitating haste upon her part, and to that the temperature of the room did not admit of leisurely dressing. She had no adequate name for the feeling of the water, and her fingers grew so numb that she made what she considered a disgraceful matter of her attire. Downstairs in the lobby, another cheerful red fire burned in the grate. How perfectly satisfying was an open fireplace. She thrust her numb hands almost into the blaze and simply shook with the tingling pain that slowly warmed out of them. The lobby was deserted. The sign directed her to a dining room in the basement, where of the ham and eggs and strong coffee she managed to partake a little. Then she went upstairs into the lobby and out into the street. A cold, piercing air seemed to blow right through her. Walking to the near corner, she paused to look around. Down the main street flowed a leisurely stream of pedestrians, horses, cars, extending between two blocks of low buildings. Across from where she stood lay a vacant lot, beyond which began a line of neat, oddly constructed houses, evidently residences of the town, and then lifting her gaze, instinctively drawn by something obstructing the skyline, she was suddenly struck with surprise and delight. Oh, how perfectly splendid, she burst out. Two magnificent mountains loomed right over her, sloping up with majestic sweep of green and black timber to a ragged tree-fringed snow area that swept up clearer and whiter, at last to lift pure glistening peaks, noble and sharp, and sunrise flushed against the blue. Carly had climbed Mount Blanc, and she had seen the Matterhorn, but they had never struck such amaze and admiration from her as these twin peaks of her native land. "'What mountains are those?' she asked the passerby. "'San Francisco Peaks, ma'am,' replied the man. "'Why, they can't be over a mile away,' she said. Eighteen miles, ma'am,' he returned with a grin. "'Sure this Arizona air is deceiving.' "'How strange,' murmured Carly. "'It's not that way in the Adirondacks.' She was still gazing upward when a man approached her and said the stage for Oak Creek Canyon would soon be ready to start, and he wanted to know if her baggage was ready. Carly hurried back to her room to pack. She had expected the stage would be a motor bus, or at least a large touring car, but it turned out to be a two-seated vehicle drawn by a team of ragged horses. The driver was a little wizened-faced man of doubtful years, and he did not appear obviously susceptible to the importance of his passenger. There was considerable freight to be hauled beside Carly's luggage, but evidently she was the only passenger. "'Reckon it's going to be a bad day,' said the driver. "'These April days, high up on the desert, are windy and cold. Maybe it'll snow, too. Them clouds hanging around the peaks ain't very promising. Now, miss, haven't you a heavier coat or something?' "'No, I have not,' replied Carly. "'I'll have to stand it. Did you say this was desert?' "'I sure did. Well, there's a horse blanket under the seat, and you can have that,' he replied, and climbing to the seat in front of Carly, 
he took up the reins and started the horses off at a trot. At the first turning, Carley became specifically acquainted with the driver's meaning of a bad day. A gust of wind, raw and penetrating, laden with dust and stinging sand, swept full in her face. It came so suddenly that she was scarcely quick enough to close her eyes. It took considerable clumsy effort on her part with a handkerchief, aided by relieving tears, to clear her sight again. Thus uncomfortably Carley found herself launched on the last lap of her journey. And before her and alongside lay the squalid environs of the town. Looked back at, with the peaks rising behind, it was not unpicturesque. But the hard road, with its sheets of flying dust, the bleak railroad yards, the round pens she took for cattle corrals, and the sort of debris littering the approach to a huge sawmill, these were offensive in Carly's sight. From a tall, dome-like stack rose a yellowish smoke that spread overhead, adding to the lowering aspect of the sky. Beyond the sawmill extended the open country, sloping somewhat roughly, and evidently once a forest, but now a hideous bare slash, with ghastly burned stems of trees still standing and myriads of stumps attesting to denudation. The bleak road wound away to the southwest, and from this direction came the gusty wind. It did not blow regularly so that Carly could be on her guard. It lulled now and then, permitting her to look about, and then suddenly again whipping dust into her face. The smell of the dust was as unpleasant as the sting. It made her nostrils smart. It was penetrating, and a little more of it would have been suffocating. And as a leaden gray bank of broken clouds rolled up, the wind grew stronger and the air colder. Chilled before, Carly now became thoroughly cold. There appeared to be no end to the devastated forest land, and the farther she rode, the more barren and sordid grew the landscape. Carly forgot about the impressive mountains behind her, and as the ride wore into hours, such was her discomfort and disillusion that she forgot about Glenn Kilbourne. She did not reach the point of regretting her adventure, but she grew mightily unhappy. Now and then she espied dilapidated log cabins, and surroundings even more squalid than the ruined forest. What wretched abodes! Could it be possible that people had lived in them? She imagined men but hardly women and children. Somewhere she had forgotten an idea that women and children were extremely scarce in the West. Straggling bits of forest, yellow pines the driver called the trees, began to encroach upon the burned-over and arid barren land. To Carly, these groves, by reason of contrast and proof of what once was, only rendered the landscape more forlorn and dreary. Why had these miles and miles of forest been cut? by money-grubbers, she supposed, the same as were devastating the Adirondacks. Presently, when the driver had to halt to repair or adjust something wrong with the harness, Carly was grateful for a respite from cold inaction. She got out and walked, sleep began to fall, and when she resumed her seat in the vehicle she asked the driver for the blanket to cover her. The smell of this horse-blanket was less endurable than the cold. Carly huddled down into a state of apathetic misery. Already she had enough of the West. But the sleet storm passed, the clouds broke, the sun shone through, greatly mitigating her discomfort. By and by the road led into a section of real forest, unspoiled in any degree. 
Carly saw large gray squirrels with tuft ears and white bushy tails. Presently the driver pointed out a flock of huge birds, which Carly, on second glance, recognized as turkeys, only these were sleek and glossy, with flecks of bronze and black and white, quite different from turkeys back east. "'There must be a farm near,' said Carly, gazing about. "'No, ma'am, them's wild turkeys,' replied the driver, "'and sure the best eatin' ye ever had in your life.' A little while afterwards, as they were emerging from the woodland into more denuded country, he pointed out to Carly a herd of grey-white rumped animals that she took to be sheep. "'And them's antelope,' he said. "'Once this desert was overrun by antelope, "'then they nearly disappeared.' and now they're increasing again. More barren country, more bad weather, and especially an exceedingly rough road reduced Carly to her former state of dejection. The jolting over roots and rocks and ruts was worse than uncomfortable. She had to hold on to the seat to keep from being thrown out. The horses did not appreciably change their gait for rough sections of the road. Then a more severe jolt brought Carly's knee in violent contact with an iron bolt on the forward seat, and it hurt her so acutely that she had to bite her lips to keep from screaming. A smoother stretch of road did not come any too soon for her. It led into forest again, and Carly soon became aware that they had at last left the cut and burned-over district of timberland behind. A cold wind moaned through the treetops and set drops of water pattering down upon her. It lashed her wet face. Carly closed her eyes and sagged in her seat, mostly oblivious to the passing scenery. The girls will never believe this of me, she soliloquized, and indeed she was amazed at herself. Then thought of Glenn strengthened her. It did not really matter what she suffered on the way to him, only she was disgusted at her lack of stamina and her appalling sensitiveness to discomfort. "'Well, here's Oak Canyon Creek,' called the driver. Carly, rousing out of her weary preoccupation, opened her eyes to see that the driver had halted at a turn of the road, where apparently it descended a fearful declivity. The very forest-fringed earth seemed to have opened into a deep abyss, ribbed by red rock walls and choked by steep mats of green timber. The chasm was a V-shaped split, and so deep that looking downward, sent at once a chill and shudder over Carly. At that point it appeared narrow and had ended in a box. In the other direction it widened and deepened, and stretched farther on between tremendous walls of red, and split its winding floor of green with glimpses of a gleaming creek, boulder-strewn and ridged by white rapids. A low mellow roar of rushing water floated up to Carly's ears. What a wild, lonely, terrible place! Could Glenn possibly live down there in that ragged rent in the earth? It frightened her, the sheer sudden plunge of it from the heights. Far down the gorge, a purple light shone on the forested floor, and on the moment the sun burst through the clouds and sent a golden blaze down into the depths, transforming them incalculably. The great cliffs turned gold, the creek changed to glancing silver, the green of trees vividly freshened and in the clefts rays of sunlight burned into the blue shadows. Carly had never gazed upon a scene like this, hostile and prejudiced, yet she felt wrung from an acknowledgment of beauty and grandeur. But wild, violent, savage, not livable, 
This insulated rift in the crust of the earth was a gigantic burrow for beasts, perhaps for outlawed men, not for a civilized person, not for Glenn Kilbourne. "'Don't be scared, ma'am,' spoke up the driver. "'It's safe if you're careful, and I've drove this many the time.' Carly's heartbeats thumped at her side, rather denying her taunted assurance of fearlessness. The rickety vehicle started down at an angle that forced her to cling to her seat. End of chapter 1, part 2